This is one of the chapters um, where we're reading about future things that specifically involves us. So this is like good stuff for us, good things for us. And we know when we begin the book of Revelation, there's the seven letters to the seven churches, and there's a, there's a prophetic application that speaks into the time that we're living in now. And so the application is like, I get that. What is God calling us to? What is he speaking to us? What has he revealed to us? And, and, and we move forward in that. And then we get into the prophecies regarding future events, right? We know that there's this pre-tribulation rapture of the church, meaning that before the seven years of God's wrath is being poured out, upon this earth that we, the church, will be caught up to heaven. The Bible says at the sound of the trumpet, not yet, (laughs) at the sound of the trumpet and the twinkling of an eye, that we who are alive and remain will be caught up together into the clouds to be with the Jesus, our Savior, and there we'll remain with him. And so while we're there, because all of God's wrath that you and I deserve, because we put our faith in Jesus Christ, all of the wrath that we deserve was poured out upon Jesus Christ, that, that because he took that wrath and now we are no longer appointed for wrath, we're in heaven Why the seven years of God's wrath is being poured out upon the earth. We're in a place called the marriage feast of the Lamb, right? And we're going to be partying, celebrating, eating good food, better than spaghetti and meatballs and dump cake. <laughs> Promise you. Amen. And, and you, there's no age limits or restrictions. <laughs> so, so we're going to be whooping it up there in heaven and uh, with, with Jesus while um, um, the world is going through some really tribulation, tribulus, some really hard times. <laughs> and, um, but then, as we talked about last week, right at the end of the seven years, there's a, there's a wedding in heaven. And we, the, the, the bride, the betrothed, become the wife, the wife, one with Christ, and all that that means in every way, in ways that we can't even imagine. And, and, and when he comes riding back on, on his white horse as a triumphal entry into this world to crush those who rebel against him, these, these enemies, the, the Antichrist, Satan, the false prophet, and, and to do away with all these things that we who have been clothed in white robes of righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that we'll ride in with him. And, and this is where it kind of picks back up. This is where we read about our future here upon this earth that's to come. And I wanted you guys to really let that sink in because it's, it's, it's certain as, it's like this. I like to think about it like this. Who likes vacation? I love vacation. <laughs> I love vacation. I wish I went on, I wish I did vacation more than I did. But um, whenever you have a vacation, what do you usually do like about Sometimes it's longer than this, but it lasts at least like three weeks before it's like time to go. What do you do? You start to get ready. Even if it's just mentally, you start to prepare. Well, what happens in a sense is you kind of check out. Maybe you're not the employee that you used to be at work because like vacation's coming. <laughs> you know, maybe you're not thinking about school in the way that you should because you're rushing to trying to get everything done because you know you're going to be gone and having fun. And as certain as that hope of vacation is real for you and the good things that it lays ahead for you, this can kind of be our mindset. It needs to be our mindset without the, the slacking off part, guys, but our mindset in regards to what the Lord has for us here. Be planning for it. Be preparing for it. And that's part of the message today. So this next chapter, listen, this is awesome, is it tells us about a future period of time that is often referred to as the millennial reign. Who's heard of that before? The millennial reign. Yeah, there's a lot of people... 
teaching out there today in the church. It's, 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 an, it's an absurd teaching when you begin to study God's Word verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and see these things. But there's a teaching out there today that says that we're in the millennial reign right now. The thousand-year reign of Christ right now. And they spiritualize it, and they take some things that God speaks about literally and um, really take it out of context. I'm here to tell you right now, um, this is not the millennial reign of Jesus Christ right now, and you're not fulfilling the prophetic promises that have been made to you right now. These are to come. And here's part of the reason why I know this is true, because the millennial reign clearly talks about a time when Satan, sin, and death will be destroyed forever. As far as I can tell, that's not happened yet. Satan, sin, and death is still taking place. And, and, and we don't want to spiritualize something that, that the Bible speaks to literally, okay? And, the, and so we will literally interpret it for what it says. And so there is coming a time when Satan, sin, and death will be destroyed and el- eliminated forever. The word millennial is, a, is constructed from two Latin words. The first word is milli, meaning a thousand, and annuum, meaning a year, okay, a thousand years. And in this chapter, a thousand years is mentioned six different times as it accounts events that are going to take place following the second coming of Jesus Christ. What we read in chapter 19, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now we're reading about what he's going to do when he gets here. If you remember from last week's study in chapter 19 about the second coming and how Jesus will easily defeat the Antichrist, kill his armies, and then cast the Antichrist and his false prophets into the lake of fire that is burning with brimstone. Um, The second coming of Jesus to the earth in his thousand-year reign over the earth that follows, that we're reading about, is also sometimes referred to as the kingdom age. Those two things are synonymous, kingdom age and the millennial reign, okay? And this next chapter... It details some very exciting things that will occur during these thousand years. And, and, and just so you know, we're going to be doing a little bit of Bible gymnastics today. Um, we're going to be here in Revelation chapter 20. We're going to be in Isaiah, Ezekiel, some of the New Testament passages. We're going to be all over the place. And um, I want to connect all of the dots for you in regards to what the Bible teaches about this so that we get the bigger picture. But we also understand that... that, that um, I'm just not telling you this is what it says. Rather, I'm telling you, listen, this is what God's Word says, and this is what God's Word says about it. And so, very exciting things. Other places of the Bible, which also account these thousand years. So, so I'm going to cross-reference some of these things so that you can get the complete picture. In the light of this, before we really get into the text, I want to point out six things, okay? Taking notes. Six main things to focus on that kind of gives us Um, the reason for these thousand years. And when we see the reasons for these thousand years, it helps us to understand that it's also a time that we're still waiting for, that's still yet to come. Okay, so first of all, the first reason for the thousand-year reign is to bring a complete fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies that and promises that God has made to Israel. And we've seen some of those come to pass in the tribulation period as we've accounted the fact that God's dealing with Israel. God's dealing with his people. He's not forsaken them. He has a plan. He has a future for them. All of his covenantal promises, what are rooted in him alone, are still to them, and God's going to bring them to pass, and we're going to see that take place during the thousand years. The second reason is to give a public display of Jesus's glory to all the earth. Now think about that for just a second. We know that there was at one point that that happened um, to some degree that when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? It says that, that um, 
he, he, there was a revealing. He was revealed in his glory. But we also know that Jesus being God in the flesh, that God also revealed his glory, even though it was somewhat obstructed, to Moses. You remember Moses went on the mountain and God wanted to see him, or Moses wanted to see him, and God's like, if, if you see me in all my glory, poof, you're just going to turn to smoke. That's my interpretation of it. Something like that. So what he did is God hid Moses in, the cleft, Moses in the cleft of the rock, right? He put his hand behind him so Moses could see as God walked by him, just the, the backside of God in a sense. And, and it was such a powerful thing. It says that Moses was shining. He came down all shiny and sparkly and, and glowing and, um, because of the glory of God was such an amazing thing to him. So, so Jesus is going to give a public display of all of his glory to the earth during that second um, and that's the second main reason for the, 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 the thousand-year reign. And we know right now that God's doing that to some degree through us, right? The Bible tells us that Jesus is the light of the world and that the light of the world is in us and that light is to shine forth from us, it says in the book of 1 John and in other places, into a dark world so that people may know him. We want people to see Jesus, not us. See, all of Jesus in all of his glory, his righteousness, his holiness, his love, his majesty, his forgiveness, all of these things. But the problem with that is that you and I, we are corrupted. We're, we're dirty vessels, and at best, what, what, when it comes to the glory of God shining through us, the glory of Jesus, what the world sees is they see it dimly. Even in our best moments, our most godly moments, is still something the world sees dimly. But guys, there's coming a time when it's going to be fully revealed. Even when Jesus came the first time, all of his glory was shrouded in human flesh. He said that, it says that he, no, I won't get in, I'm going to get off topic. But, but the fullness of his glory wasn't revealed to us. It was in a likeness, is what we're told. Fully God, fully man, not disputing that, that, that theological truth, but it's going to be different when he comes as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And there's an accountability to that, and we'll get into this a little bit more. So that's the second reason. The third reason is to answer the prayers that, that have been asked over down through time for God's kingdom to come and for God's will to be done on the earth as it is in heaven. See, can we say that's really happening right now? Do we pray for that? Yeah, we talked about that a few weeks ago in the Lord's Prayer right? Our Father who art in heaven, I'll be your name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is here in heaven. And that's a model prayer, but that's part of how the Lord taught us to pray. Pray for God's will to be done here on this earth. And it happens every day. It does. But is it happening 100% of the time? No. My will sums come forth. Your will comes forth. Um, our politicians' will sums comes forth, unfortunately, um, at times. But the thing about it is during this millennial reign, you know whose will is done? God's will. When? All the time. All the time. Why? Because Christ is ruling and reigning upon the earth, and he judges in righteousness instantaneously, right away. So the fourth is to fulfill the, pro the prophetic promises made to the church, those prophetic promises made to Israel, covenant and promises made to Israel that will be fulfilled during this time, but also for the church. Specifically, this one thing, and there's more, but one thing in that how um, we, the saints, the Bible tells us that we're going to rule and reign with Jesus. That's a pretty cool thing. As his priest, and we're going to read that. The fifth is to bring about the complete redemption of all of creation from the bondage of corruption as promised in Romans chapter 8. So this is the first place you can turn to if you want. Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 20. It talks about how all of the earth is under the weight of sin. All of creation is 
under the bondage of sin in, in, his, in this place, this state of corruption, meaning it's not the way that God's made it. Ouch. <laughs> How many times have you looked at the world around us and just gone, man, those mountains are beautiful. The river and the trees and, and you know, you've been, I've, been to the, I've been all over the world. It's been an awesome experience that I've been able to do. And there's God's beauty and majesty revealed, as it says in the book of Romans, throughout all of creation so that every man stands without an excuse before God. But in that, it's not the way that God has made it. It's, it's, it's just it's less than what it should be and, um, because of sin. And so it says there's coming a day when that's going to be changed. And it says in verse 19 of Romans 8, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to the futility, to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Has that happened yet? No. And you can, you can just look at the animal kingdom. You can look at the human race to see that. But look at the animal kingdom, which is subjected to it as well. Um, you see uh, a, a sense of corruption in that. Um, but it's going to be delivered into the glorious liberty of the children of God. This, it says, for we know that the whole of creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Why? Because there's a delivering that's coming. That's why there's this reference to, to birth pangs. It's crying out, crying out. And I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but the birth pangs that the world is experiencing, that the earth is under, some even say it can be, can be seen in... Um, uh, the natural disasters, the catastrophes that are going on. And when you see them getting closer and more intense, we see that to be true in the process of, of labor and delivery. You know, when a woman goes into labor, first it's, it's, it's the contractions are, are slight, and uh, I don't mean to say anything about that. They're just not as bad as they are when they get closer to the baby being delivered, and then they get closer together and more intense and closer together and more intense until there's a delivery and she's delivered from her pregnancy, right? In the same way the earth is groaning, the Bible says, and labors with birth things until now. But there's coming a time that we're going to read about where it's going to be made free, set free, delivered. Now, the sixth and final reason for the kingdom age, the millennial reign of Jesus, is this. Now, think about this. is to give all of mankind one final trial, one final test in relationship to the sovereign rule of God in relation to Jesus' sovereign reign upon the earth. And I'll go into deep more detail with that as we go through this. But with these things in mind, let's look to verse 1. Revelation chapter 20, verse 1. It says, Then John says, I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil, and that means the false accuser, and Satan, which means the adversary, and he bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And you, like me, are probably going, why would that ever happen? Why would they release Satan once they finally got him bound up? We'll talk about that in a minute. But... Um, in these verses, what we're reading is a continuation, right? It's a continuation of where we're at in chapter 19, where John continues to account the things that are going to happen as a result of Jesus' return. And, and um, 
we see that um, from, well, remember, the first thing that Jesus does is he defeats these armies that have come against him. He takes the Antichrist and the, the, the false prophet, and he takes care of them. He, he, he binds, he locks them up, and now he's dealing with Satan. And, and so rather, but notice, rather than, than Satan, the devil, the adversary, the false accuser being put with the Antichrist in the false prophet, who at this time are, are placed in the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, Satan will be bound and cast into what's called the bottomless pit at the beginning of the kingdom age, at the start of the thousand-year reign of Christ. And the fact, I love this, just a little side note, the fact that it's an unnamed angel. Do you see that? It's an unnamed angel is what we see here, who lays hold and binds Satan for these, these thousand years is, is pretty significant. I, I love it because when you're reading through this and you think about Satan, right? And you're like, you're like man, that guy, you would think, Send Michael, the archangel, right? The one who leads the Lord's armies into battle, you know? Or, or maybe send Jesus, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. And he's there. Why doesn't he take care of Satan himself at this time? Or, or even God, you know, who can just speak a word. God, the Father, all these things. And, and, and he doesn't do any of that. He just sends this angel that doesn't even have a name. Probably just like any other ordinary angel in heaven. And not that angels are ordinary. But, but in this sense that, it's just like, Jesus is God up in heaven. He's saying, hey, come here. Here's a key. Here's a chain. Go get him. And he goes and gets him. He puts him. He binds him. He does this. And the thing about it, guys, is I, is I mentioned this because what this shows us is that just how Satan's power is so limited. He's so limited. He can't do anything without God's permission. He can't. And you know what the Bible says? He says that when God's called us to go do something, even if it's the, the devil himself is standing before you, he will not be able to prevail against you. The Bible says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in this world. You know? And I'm not one of these guys that are like claiming dominion and all that. That's, that's, uh, but I am telling you this, you have no reason to fear the enemy. None. Be cautious. Be aware, the Bible says. Understand that he's crafty and he's a deceiver and he's a liar and he's a murderer and all these things. But understand, if God's called you to go do something, not even Satan himself can stand in your way. I love that because as we see the church being attacked today, even from, from government officials in many ways because of the stuff that's going on and the oppression and suppression of, of the church that's taking place, the Bible tells us that not even the gates of hell can prevail against the church. And man, I love that we see that it's just an ordinary angel, if you will, that comes and deals with Satan. Now, speaking about the place that he's going to be put, this bottomless pit is the same place that's mentioned back in Revelation chapter 9. And back in that chapter, if you want to look there, you can. It's the trumpet judgments, and we read specifically about the fifth angel that will sound a trumpet. And when this fifth angel sounds the trumpet... What we're told is that the bottomless pit at that time is going to be unlocked. And it's not unlocked so that Satan can be put in. It's unlocked at that time so things can come out. If you remember, it's like it's some creepy things that we read about. There's demons that have been locked, the Bible says, in this bottomless pit. And if you remember, we go back and read about the account. Um, it's, in, it's in Isaiah and a couple other passages where it tells us that there was a time when Satan led a rebellion against God in heaven many, many, many thousands of years ago. We're not exactly sure on the time of that. Um, there's lots of speculation. The time frame's not important. But we know that when that happened, when Satan led a rebellion against God, that a thousand, or excuse me, a third of the angels in heaven 
um, and Satan were cast down. And many of those angels, those fallen angels that were also referred to as demons, were, were bound in this pit, in this, in this bottomless, in this, in this pit. And they were bound there. And during the, that fifth trumpet judgment, they're gonna, it's going to be open and a dark smoke's going to come out. It's going to block out the sun. And it says that demons are going to come up, not any ordinary demons, demons that look like locusts. I don't like to read the full description because it creeps me out. You can look if you want. And, and what they do is they come up to hunt the men of the earth, the inhabitants of the earth. And what they do is, is they seek to torment those who have taken the mark of the beast. They have a scorpion-like tail. They sting them. I refer to this as the true biblical zombie apocalypse chapter. <laughs> Because what happens is, is when they're stung, the Bible says that these guys are in such torment who get stung by these, these, these demons is that, is that they, they seek death, but they cannot find it. They cannot find it. Um, nevertheless, this is the same place that we're reading about here. Now, the Greek word used here in chapter 20 and in chapter 9 for the bottomless pit is the word abuso. And um, it literally means the shaft of the abyss. And according to Jude, uh, in Second Peter chapter 2, Jude 6, uh, Jude only has one chapter, uh, six, or in verse 6, Jude 6, in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4, where it also refers to the, the abuso. The abuso is a prison for fallen angels, these demons who have been prisoned by God until the day of final judgment when they and Satan will ultimately be sent to hell. And yes, I said the word hell. It's a real place, even though there are many in the church today who teach otherwise, false teachers. But Satan, who has, who has been allowed to roam the earth for all these years, will be imprisoned there. Now, we don't know exactly know what the abuso is like, but um, I think it's safe to say, guys, it's not a fun place. And um, part of the reason we know that is because other demons who have had, um, who have, were not bound there when Satan fell and took the angels with him, there were other angels who roamed the earth, demons, right? And, and what we know is, is, is they don't want to go there. They don't want to go to the abuso. In fact, we see this from the account found in Luke chapter 8. So if demons don't even want to go there, pretty sure um, you don't want to go there either, and neither does the devil. So, but in Luke chapter 8, it tells us about the time when Jesus was in Israel, traveling and ministering there on the Sea of Galilee, and he went across the Sea of Galilee to the Lake of the Gadareans. And at that time, Jesus had sailed across the, the Sea of Galilee, and when he got out of his boat, we're told that he was immediately confronted by a man who was possessed by demons, a wild man. People couldn't do anything with him. He's breaking chains, he's naked, all this kind of stuff. And um, the creepy thing about that is, is when Jesus engages him, after the guy says some things to him, you know, he says to the demon, what's your name? And the demons, the demons, many inside of him, he says, we are legion, for we are many. And um, again, that makes the hair on the back of my head stand up there. It's kind of creepy, but... Um, what the demons say to him is this, to Jesus, they say at this time, Matthew or Luke chapter 8, what have we to do with you, Jesus, Son of God? Isn't it interesting that even the demons know who Jesus is? And I love that study. There's a study I do in the book of James where it talks about you know, the different levels of faith, and even the demons have faith. They do. But it's not a saving faith, guys, right? They believe. You are the Son of God. He says, have you come... 
here to torment us before the time. Now, what is that referring to? Before the time. Remember, God has an appointed time for everything. And there's an appointed time that we're reading now about here where he's going to deal with all these things. Satan, sin, demons, death, all of it. And when Jesus finally spoke to this guy, he just commanded the demons to come out of the man. And in doing so, we know that they begged Jesus to not send them into the abuso. But rather, they pleaded with Jesus, and, and Jesus ended up sending them into a herd of pigs. And Jesus granted their request, and when he cast them out, the pigs ran off the edge of the cliff. Now, when we're talking about places like the bottomless pit, I want to make some distinctions so that you're not confused about you know, all of this these uh, eternal places of damnation, so to speak. The first is that the abuso is not hell, okay? It's not hell. And Satan and his demons will only be imprisoned there until the day of final judgment, and then this place will ultimately be destroyed by God. In addition to the bottomless pit, the Bible speaks of another place of waiting, and it's called Hades, okay? Who's heard of that term before? Hades. Um, Hades is not the abuso, and Hades is not hell. This place, which is mentioned in verse 13 as well, Hades, is also called or referred to as Sheol, or the place of the dead. So when you're reading through Scripture, understand that those things are also synonymous. Hades, Sheol, the place of the dead. And the Bible teaches us that Hades, or Sheol, is the place where all people who have died before Jesus went to the cross to die on the cross, this is where all people went to Hades, to the place of the dead, to Sheol. In fact, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells a story about this place. Do you remember that? And, and, and from what we read is we see um, that Hades has two sides, um, which are separated. And you can read chapter Luke, or Luke chapter 16 if you want on your own, but in Hades, there's two sides, and it's separated by a great gulf. And this gulf separates two different kinds of people, two different groups of people. On one side are those, we are told, who have put their faith in God's promises, a future promise of a Savior. And Jesus referred to this place as Abraham's bosom. Have you heard of that before? And he described the Abraham's bosom, that the one half of, of Hades, of Sheol, is... Um, a place of comfort. That's what Abraham's bosom is. And these people who were in Abraham's bosom were there waiting, the Bible teaches this, until Jesus, by his death and resurrection, was able to make a way for sinful man to be forgiven and to come into the presence of God. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus did this, or excuse me, when, he, when Jesus died on the cross, right, it says that he went to Hades. Do you remember that? And what did he do? He went there to set the captives free, and he took them to be with him in heaven, those who had put their faith looking forward to the future promises of a Savior, the Messiah, the Christ, God's anointed one. And so immediately upon dying on the cross, Jesus goes, I'm going to get them. I'm taking them home. I'm bringing them with me. I'm setting them free. And he did, but he left another half there, and they're still waiting on the other side of this gulf is a place that's simply referred to as a place of torment. And we're told that it is a place where flames are always burning and that those who go to this place of torment are ultimately those who have died without putting their faith in Jesus Christ. Consequently, they're in a spot, they're, in, they're being detained, okay? Um, they're being detained. And in this place of torment there until really what the Bible says is a second resurrection. And at that time, they will be bought back to face a final judgment. 
And in light of this, and for the sake of clarity, it's also important to point out that the Bible talks about another place that is commonly referred to as hell. But the Bible also refers to hell as Gehenna. You've heard about that. That has some Hebrew um, uh, orientations that I don't want to get into this morning, um, but also as the lake of fire. Go look it up. It's really cool how it all ties together. Anyway, so hell or Gehenna or the lake of fire. And in Matthew chapter 25, we're clearly told, we see that this is a place of eternal judgment. Jesus himself speaks about it in that place. And listen, this is what he says about it. He says it is a place where there is a weeping and a gnashing of teeth. The place of fire. A place where the worm never dies. But I want to point out that the Bible in Matthew chapter 25, verse 41, tells us in the same breath almost that hell was not created for mankind. Did you know that? That wasn't part of God's original plan. It was created for, for Satan and all of his fallen demons his angels who rebelled against God. But even though hell was not created for humans, guys, it will be the place where those who reject, hear me, make no mistake of it, this is part of the good news message. And why is it good, part of the good news message? Because um, apart from receiving Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is where you're going to. But the good news is, is God doesn't want you to go there. He's made an alternative way for you. And, and, and only if you reject Jesus will you be sent there after the final judgment. However, this is what God came to save us from. And in this place of torment, we're told that people who go there, they will remain for all eternity. I know one of the false teachings in the church today is not only that there is not hell, is that they say hell's only a temporary place. It's kind of like, you know, you're getting sentenced by the judge, and it's like, yeah, you're going to, you're going to, you can, you know, you're 2,000 years. It's like God's going to stand before you, hear your case, and then at the end of it, he's going to judge your works and go, yeah, you're going to hell for 2,000 years. Oh, you, you may be only for 500, but that's not it. It's not this place that you go to and get out of. You go there and you don't get out. Your soul remains forever and ever and ever. So after Satan is bound and cast into this bottomless pit by the angel who has been given these keys, the Bible says there's a resurrection of the saints, okay? Those who were martyred during the tribulation period because of their faith and commitment to Jesus. And in verse 4, we read on, look, and it says, and I saw thrones, John says. I saw thrones, and, and, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus, for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their forehead or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again yet, right, until the thousand years were finished. And so this resurrection, this is the first resurrection, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection over such the second death. What's the first death? This physical death when these bodies expire, right? But not an eternal death. So over such, those who experience this first resurrection to, to be with Christ during the millennial the second death, the eternal death, it has no power over you. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him for a thousand years. This is our future. This is our future. 
And according to Daniel chapter 12, we understand that at this time, and we're going to move a little bit more into some of the Old Testament stuff now, but in Daniel chapter 12, we understand that at this time, all the Old Testament saints who lived and died prior to Jesus' first coming will also be resurrected back to life during this first resurrection. Okay, there's a, there's a resurrection, if you will, that takes place during the tribulation period, and, 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 and this one here, um, a bodily resurrection, so one want time to get into all that. You guys will look at that at another time, but at this point... Um, all, what, we, what we're really being told is that all saved people, past, present, and those during the tribulation period, right? All saved people, including us, the church, who will have followed Jesus back to the earth for this millennial reign are now present. And what are we present for? To rule and reign. To reign with Jesus during this thousand years. And fortunately for us, there are several passages of Scripture that describe what it's going to look like. And there are a couple I want to draw your attention to. One is this awesome prophecy. There's some amazing prophecies in the Old Testament that are just mind-blowing. And when people say that they don't believe the Bible to be true, I read these things and I go, how can you not when you see this stuff being prophesied and it's come to pass? But anyway, in Ezekiel chapter 34, there's this prophecy. Now, the prophet Ezekiel lived nearly 400 years after King David's reign, okay? And yet... Ezekiel, through the power of the Holy Spirit, prophesies about David in a future sense, okay? And, and in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 34, verses 23 through 24, even though King David had been dead for nearly 400 years, Ezekiel prophesies about David, saying that David, who will also be resurrected at this first resurrection, one of the Old Testament saints, it says that he will be established by God. Now listen to this. He will be established by God to rule as a prince Jesus being the king, David being a prince, under Jesus' authority and rule as the shepherd, it says, over the nation of Israel. Pretty cool stuff. In addition to this, there's another place in Scripture. Do I want to do this? No, I, yeah, well, maybe not. <laughs> Guys, there's, there's also some things out there. You just need to know your word. Know the word of God. There are people out there that said that the Hebrew people didn't believe in eternity, in, a, in, a, in an afterlife. Huh? I read stuff like this and I go, how do you make those kinds of conclusions? You know, and, and, and they say, well, this recently it just kind of like, a, it's almost like the Sadducees. They're Sadducees because they don't believe in the resurrection. But it's, it's, it's not true. The Hebrew people believed in an afterlife. They believed in a resurrection. They believed in a future life to come. And, 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 and passages of like this that have prophetic, clear prophetic implications about the future reveal that. And God was communicating to him over and over and over again. And so he was saying, David's going to be resurrected. And at that time, he's going to be a prince over Israel, a ruler over the nation of Israel, once again, under the rule of Jesus. It's that clear. Go look at it. The Messiah, the Christ. Now, in addition to this, there's another place in Scripture where it talks about this time of ruling and reigning. And it's in the New Testament, and it's found in Matthew chapter 19. And it's the words of Jesus in verse 28, where Jesus said to his apostles, listen, <laughs> It, it, it all fits together perfectly. Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, what's a regeneration? A resurrection, right? In the regeneration, more specifically, if you don't know what I'm talking about, Jesus is saying, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Who is he talking to? The 12 apostles. What was he promising them? The same thing that was promised to David. A future throne as a prince. 
to rule and reign. And Jesus is saying, David's going to be the prince, and you 12, my apostles, are going to be those who will be individually accountable for the 12 tribes of Israel during this millennial reign. And in light of passages like this, and in light of what we read here, we see that Jesus is going to be in charge of the whole world, having set up his throne in the very city of Jerusalem, and his kingdom will be the only kingdom. However, it's clear, David will be given a throne over Israel, and together with the 12 apostles... They will judge the 12 tribes that make up the nation that God's people, um, of, of God's elect people. That's one section. That's one segment. That's, the, that's part of the fulfillment to the nation of Israel in regards to old, time prophecies, old Testament prophecies and other words that Jesus spoke that are going to come to pass. The cool thing is, is, is and that's cool too, but the, 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 the cooler thing is that at the end of this tribulation, um, these Jews who have survived, the Hebrew people at this time, remember, they're going to be hunted down, but God's going to protect them, right, during the tribulation period. Satan's going to unleash all of his wrath upon him. God's going to hide him out. He's going to take care of him. And, and these Hebrew people at this time during the tribulation that have survived as a result of God's supernatural innovation, even though they're going to be dispersed again all throughout the world, because right now God's bringing them back together, right? He's giving them a nation. He's giving them their land. He's reestablishing them. But when the Antichrist comes, it's all going to be taken back away again. And they're going to flee for their lives, and God's going to protect them. But God says, I'm going to bring them back again. And how's he going to do it this time? With angels. He's going to send his angels, it says, to gather them, God's people, back together. And at that time, Jesus will reveal himself, we're told, to him as their Messiah. And the Jews who believe will be brought back into the promised land. And all that God has promised to them through the Abrahamic covenants, brought down through the Mosaic covenants, is, is, is going to be instilled to them. The land of promise, uh, or the promise of land, the promise of being a great and mighty nation, and the promise of being blessed and redeemed. It'll finally take possession of all of these things. See, God's not done. Another false teaching out there is called replacement theology where God says that God's done with the Hebrew people because they've rejected him and that somehow the church has replaced him. Paul says, no, 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 don't be mistaken. He says, we've been grafted in and God still has a work to do with them. And in Matthew chapter 24 is where we read about this future promise to come, verses 29 to 31. And you know what? All the promises of God are yes and amen. God doesn't break his promises, guys. And if he did, then how can we know he was trustworthy? If he broke his promises to the people of Israel, his chosen people, then how do we know his promises to us are sure? We know because he's faithful and true. And in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus said this. He said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, seven years of tribulation, he says, the sun and moon will be dark and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the power of heaven will be shaken. Probably because the whole sky as we know it, as is told back in 19, is going to open up to reveal the spiritual realm. Galaxies and universes, and it says, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. That's Jesus coming in on a white horse, right? And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and with great glory. And we know from what we read last week is they even try to hide themselves. And he will send his angels, is what it says, and Jesus, he'll send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together the elect from the four winds and from one end of the earth to the other. Where? Back to Jerusalem, back to Israel. Now the last group of people who will be given thrones to sit upon during these thousand years of reign is, who, is, who knows it? Us. The church. Right along with David, 
right along with the apostles, God sees us in the same way. This is pretty amazing. I kind of look up to David, even though he's a knucklehead. <laughs> the apostles, you know, you think, yeah, the apostles. But, but God looks at us through his son Jesus and goes, I got good things for you just like that. And this is also prophesied about in like Old Testament passages way before the church was even formed, like Daniel chapter 7, verses 21 through 20, 22. It says, Daniel says this, man, he says, because he was given visions, right? He says, I was watching in the same horn, and we know the horn is reference to the, the, the book of Revelation, and looking forward to that is speaking of like a king, a leader, a nation, and we know it's the Antichrist, right? And the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. Until the Ancient of Days came. Satan's time's limited. The Ancient of Days is coming. And a judgment, I love this, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High. Now, I've never had the opportunity to do that, but, you know, I think, eh, if I got a judgment, that usually means that you're like, when people talk about it, like, Frank Azar, right? And you're going to get a judgment. <laughs> the Shaman. <laughs> it's like, man, you're getting some good but this is better. I mean, you got something better than Frank Azar. You got the Ancient of Days. And he's going to make a judgment in your favor at this time. Forgive me, Lord. I don't know where that came from. <laughs> it's the best thing I could get out in the moment. <laughs> and, it says, and it says, in the favor of the saints of the Most High. And listen, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. You know what you are right now? You're a citizen of a heavenly kingdom. The Bible says we're sojourners, pilgrims, right? We're passing through. This world is temporary. But have you taken possession of that kingdom yet? No, we're still, we're still in a foreign land. But there's coming a time where we're going to possess the kingdom. God says it's yours. And this was explained by Jesus in passages like Matthew chapter 25 and Luke chapter 19. And in that, Jesus records this parable of the talents. Jesus takes an earthly thing to explain a spiritual truth through a parable. In Luke's account, this parable, we're told that as Jesus neared Jerusalem, his disciples mistakenly believed that Jesus was going to go to Jerusalem at this time and establish his throne and interrupt his kingdom. And these, these thrones that have been promised to them to rule as princes, right? They're going to get their own and they're going to be in power with him. And remember, two of Jesus' apostles were like, you know, like, Mom, go talk to him. Make sure we can get the, the, the one on the right and the one on the left. You know, in these, these places of prominence and power. They really believed. But Jesus knew it was not the right time. Why? Because the Hebrew people were going to reject him as their king, as the Messiah. And as a result, Jesus spoke this parable of the talents to open up their understanding, which tells about a master. If you remember, he said there's a master who went off to a far country. And before he left, he gave a certain amount of talents, which is a measure of money, to each of his servants. But when he, when he had given to each of his servants, he said he'd given it to them to their own ability. So without excuse, he's like, you can handle this much, do something with it, right? And he gave them this money with the expectation that they would do business with his money while he was gone. Where's Jesus right now? He's gone. He's a master. We're the servants. He's given to each one of us something, some things. What are we doing? And we know that Jesus spoke this parable to his disciples to explain, first of all, that it was not yet time for his kingdom to come, that he had to go away, but how he also, like the master in the parable, had to go away, but when, he, but when, he, but when the right time came for him to come back, he would return and set up his kingdom, and then he would give an, he'd call his servants to give an account. And who's the servants? It's the church. 
It's those of us who've been left behind, who've been called to do our master's business while he was gone. But in that, we're also told that in that parable that we were going to be rewarded, that we will be rewarded according to what we have done with what we've been given while we wait for his return. Is Jesus your Savior? Is he your Savior? Is he your Lord? If he's your Lord, this parable means everything to your life and everything to your future in the millennial kingdom. Is he your Lord? Our Lord, our Master has entrusted us. And he's coming back. And in this parable, Jesus explained that in accordance to how well we do in bringing an increase to his kingdom with the provisions that we've been given, with the gifts that we've been given, with the talents that we've been given, to bring this increase to his kingdom with the same measure we will be rewarded, is what we're told. And in light of this, we can see that great reward, the great reward being spoken of, in part, is going to be some kind of city Part, some kind of people group, city, county, uh, state, nation, I don't know, Coldale, Rockvale, you're going to get charged over something. <laughs> and the measure that you did here is your return. But according to verse 6, we see that whatever it is that we're rewarded or awarded with, it'll be a blessing. Why? Because we get this privilege. We get the awesome privilege of being the priests of God is what it says under the rule of reign of Jesus Christ. Now think about that, because perhaps the greatest part of this blessing comes from the fact that as Jesus reigns, think about it, him on the earth, it means that he's going to be reigning, and when he does so, it's going to be perfect. There will be a perfect environment and a perfect government. That, that blows my mind, especially in the contrast of what we got right now. First of all, with Satan gone, there will be an environment for mankind to live in, one that is free from Satan's lies. Are you tired of the lies in this world today? Free from deception. Are you, free? Are you tired of deception? I am. How about temptation? Free from temptations. Furthermore, in Isaiah chapter 65, another passage of Scripture that prophesies about the kingdom age, it tells us that when Jesus comes, he will restore the heavens and the earth from all the damage that occurred during the tribulation period and done by the sinfulness of mankind up to this point. That's in next week's chapter. You don't want to miss it. It's going to be awesome. In fact, we're told that, that it will be restored back to the condition that the earth was in prior to the flood. Meaning people, once again, will live for a long time, um, for a very long time, several hundred years old. In fact, Isaiah 65.20, it says this specifically. It's mind-blowing that people will live to be um, past the age of 100. And if you only live to be, uh, uh, someone who's 100 is going to be considered to be a child. And if someone dies before they're of 100 years old, it says in Isaiah 65.20, it's because they're sinning and considered to be a curse. Now, the other thing that will be experienced as a result of Jesus' kingdom being established here on the earth, think about this, is that all injustice and every sin will be dealt with immediately and perfectly. That goes back to the fact of, of um, we'll just leave it at that, <laughs> immediately and perfectly. And according to Jeremiah chapter 33, the very throne of Jesus will bear this title, Jehovah Tiskanu which means the Lord our righteousness. And this is because Jesus will rule the earth in righteousness. Listen to Isaiah chapter 11, verses 3 through 5. It speaks of this very thing. It says, And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, 
But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the bread of his lips, with the breath of his lips, he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins and faithfulness the belt of his waist. We're almost done, guys. In addition to these things, we're told that there will be peace on earth. Wonderful stuff. Peace on earth between all of God's creation. Not just man, but everything. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, it says that Jesus will judge between the nations and men will have no longer a need for any weapon. I'm, some, I'm partly okay with that. <laughs> kind of like my guns, but um, they're fun. But it's not going to be a weapon, I guess. Maybe you'll still have that. Because it says they'll beat those swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. And no longer will a nation lift up its sword against another nation. And it's a very awesome thing. But, even, but, 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 but the peace that Jesus brings, we need to see that it's not just to all of mankind. It's to the whole of creation. And, and men will live alongside the animals of the earth in peace and harmony. Go read Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9. It's familiar. It's like where the, it talks about the wolf dwelling with the lamb, right? Go read that. And so for a thousand years, mankind will be governed, by a perfect, governed perfectly by a loving and righteous king. And for a thousand years, mankind will live in peace in a near-perfect environment. But because, here's the but... But because every single human being has a wicked heart and a sinful nature, many who will be born during this time will ultimately make a decision to rebel against Jesus when Satan is ultimately released from the bottomless pit. Verse 7. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. And this is how God deals with them. And fire came down from God and heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them, was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. So Satan's going to be imprisoned, in, um, who has been imprisoned at the bottomless pit um, at the beginning of the thousand-year reign is going to be released. And we see that this release is not for good behavior, Okay. Rather, it's so that he might go out and deceive the nations, and even in the midst of this near-perfect environment, Satan is able to gather human or to gather a huge army and to go and fight against Jesus. And like I said at the beginning of this, when I read that, if you're like me, I go, why? Why would God ever permit this to happen? But hear me, the fact of the matter is, is that this rebellion, is, is, as in regards to the testing of mankind and the testing of the human heart, proves this, that the rule of perfect law cannot change the human heart. I wish our legislators would get that in their minds. Guys, we don't change this world by advocating for more laws. We change this world by people having a, a, a sincere and genuine relationship with Jesus Christ who can change the heart of a person, not just the outward behavior. And that's the only hope that all of mankind has, even if everything's perfect. You see, the bottom line is, is that even in the, the rule of perfect law, the human heart cannot be changed. And sadly, sinners would rather follow after Satan than Jesus Christ, even when he's standing right behind him. For all of human history, man has wanted to blame, we've wanted to blame our sinful condition on our environment, right? It's not my fault. I turned out the way that I did because, did you see the family I came from? 
Did you see the neighborhood I grew up in? On and on and on and on. But with the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ, God will give mankind a thousand years of perfect environment with no Satan, no crime, no violence, no evil, or other, any other social, social pathology. But at the end of the thousand years, man will still rebel against God at his very first opportunity. And this powerfully demonstrates that the problem is in us. It's not in our environments. And this rebellion that Satan leads reveals how many people will give this outward obedience. Guys, is he your Lord? Do not just give him your outward obedience, but be submitted to him in your heart. So one of the main purposes of the thousand-year reign of Jesus is to prove conclusively that mankind cannot be changed even under a perfect rule in an imperfect environment. The point of this is to say, Seth, if you want to come up, we're going to wrap it up for the last song here. If people are not changed by the grace of God, if people are not changed by the grace of God, nothing else will change them. When you spend your time outside of this church building convincing and influencing people, may it be this truth. There's no hope for you apart from the grace of God. Verse 11 Then I saw the great white throne, and he who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven had fled away, and there was found no place for them. And that's talking in heaven, okay? That's what it's it's referring to in contrast to what is found for them. And it says, and then I saw dead, small, and great, standing before God, and books were open, and another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, but the things which were written in the, uh, by the things that were written in the other books. The sea gave up its dead who were in it, and then death and Hades, right, were delivered up, and the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. Verse 15, anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. One of the things I want you to understand when we talk about the judgment of God and standing before Jesus or God on whatever one of the judgments they are, this is the great white throne judgment. There's other judgments to come. I don't want to go into detail about all of them. Some are for believers. Um, this one is for unbelievers. Um, there's the book of life, and then there's the books of works. So, but I want you to get this clear. When we think of the courtroom today, we think of like you have the prosecutor, right? And then you have the um, defendant's attorney, and then you have the defendant, and the defendant's attorney is speaking on behalf of the defendant, and he's trying to make the case, and, and, and they're pleading with the judge, and, and, and that's not how this is. One of the things to notice here is there's no talking going on. This is not a trial in, in where someone's trying to determine what the facts are. You're like trying to convince God of how worthy you are of whatever. And so many people think that. Or when I get to heaven, and someone sharing with me even earlier in first seven, when I get to heaven and I stand before God, this is what I'm going to tell him. I'm like, no, your mouth is going to be shut. See, the facts are in. This is the time of sentencing. You are guilty. Why? Because the Bible says that all men stand guilty before God, condemned, and that Jesus was sent not to condemn the world, but to save the world. We're already condemned. We're already guilty. There's no trial. It's in. And now it's time for sentencing. And because this is a sentencing, not a trial, those who stand before God on, before the throne room of God, they have nothing to say. All mouths will be closed, and those who have refused to come to God by faith through Jesus will by default be judged by their works. I'll end with this one statement. Please see this in this. 
God does not send people to hell. He saves people from hell. People go to hell because they've rejected Jesus Christ. And God wants you to be saved. And he's calling out to you this morning to turn, to turn from your sin and to turn from him and be saved. Put your faith in Jesus. He died on the cross for your sin so that the wrath of God that you deserve, that you'd be spared from that. And he took it upon himself. The Bible says that he who knew no, he had no sin became sin. And he took your unrighteousness upon himself and gave you his righteousness so that you may live. And all you have to do is believe, call out to him, receive him as your savior and walk submitted in lordship to him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for the words that you've given us here. Thank you for this future hope that's presented to us that helps us, Lord, to live with courage and grace and strength and love in this world that we live in today as we wait for your return. God, we know it's coming quickly. And we, we, we pray, we, we, we ask, Lord, that you would hasten the day, but we also ask, God, that you would save many and use us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We stand?